Hello, I'm Ali Moore. This is Ear to Asia. I don't think there's any great affection for Donald Trump in Indonesia, but by the same token, there's probably been less protests towards Trump than what you might expect in the world's largest Muslim-majority nation. And it really only was the move of the embassy in Israel that provoked large public protests about the US role. Indonesia do not have close relations with the United States, even though we maintain a good relation, but not in the term of alliance. We prefer to say that we depend on the good relation with all big powers. In this episode, the foreign policy priorities and predicaments of Indonesia. Ear to Asia is the podcast from Asia Institute, the Asia research specialists at the University of Melbourne. In Ear to Asia, we talk with Asia researchers about the issues behind the news headlines in a region that's rapidly changing the world. In the seven decades since it became an independent republic, Indonesia has consistently tried to get along with other nations. There are, of course, notable exceptions. Military confrontation with Malaysia in the 1960s and the invasion and annexation of East Timor in 1975. Still, the nation has long described its brand of foreign policy as free and active – but can it remain so in an increasingly challenging regional and global environment? Flexing its economic and military muscle, China unilaterally claims up to 90% of the South China Sea, including parts of what Indonesia considers its exclusive economic zone. Meanwhile, for Southeast Asian states, including Indonesia, there's growing uncertainty about the dependability of the United States and its commitment to the region under Donald Trump. In the future, how will China's increasing assertiveness and Donald Trump's temperament shape Indonesia's foreign policy? And as Indonesia gears up for elections in 2019, what role will domestic politics, including political Islam, play in how Jakarta deals with the world? To take us on a deep dive into the state of Indonesia's foreign policy are Indonesia watchers and political scientists Dr Dave McRae from Asia Institute at the University of Melbourne. He's also the co-host of the Talking Indonesia podcast. And Dr Effie Fitriani from the International Relations Department of Universitas Indonesia. Effie joins our conversation via Skype from Jakarta. Welcome Effie and Dave. Pleasure to be here. Hi. Let's start with the big picture. What are the priorities for Indonesia's foreign policy right now? What are the objectives and how consistent have they been over recent decades, Dave? I think much like any nation, probably Indonesia's three broadest foreign policy priorities are regional stability, its own national security and economic growth and development. And in that context, I think for a long time, the US has been Indonesia's most important security partner, although not through an alliance like Australia holds with the United States, and China has been the most important economic partner. When you talk about consistency of approach, the underlying principle is that of a free and active foreign policy. Basically, this translates to avoiding domination by any one major power and not entering into security alliances with much bigger powers like China and the United States. That's an approach at first formulated in the context of the Cold War, but which it maintains to the present day. 
Effie, do you see continuity in foreign policy or do you see more recent policy as, I guess, more practical than ideological? Well, actually, Indonesia has been pursuing more or less practical foreign policy since President Suharto. At that time, he tried to get a lot of support from Western countries. So in terms of practicality, it has been started from President Suharto in, at the end of 1960s. So in this case, it is quite uh, consistent from Suharto up to President Jokowi that they are all pursuing practical foreign policy. And do you see China as the the most important economic partner and the US as the most important security partner? Are those two relationships the most important ones for Indonesia to get right, Effie? I would prefer to say that China is the most important economic partner, but United States is not really the most important security partner because our relation with United States is very different with Australian United States relation. Indonesia do not rely its security on United States and we don't have close relation with United States, even though we maintain a good relation, but not in the term of alliance. We prefer to say that we depend on the good relation with all big powers, not only with the United States. Which does rather raise the question, doesn't it, of how Indonesia can protect its own interests in an environment where there are these great powers and increasing challenges between the great powers. As if he says it's part of, I guess, the uh, the free and active policy, there's no security agreement, there's no alliance with the US. Dave, how does Indonesia protect its interests? When the free and active foreign policy was first promulgated, the Indonesian vice president at the time, back in the late 1940s, Mohamed Hatta, explicitly cited that Indonesia was geographically removed from the main belligerents in the Cold War. And this presented it with the opportunity uh, to pursue a free and active foreign policy rather than aligning itself with one or the other side. Obviously, as geostrategic competition has evolved over the decades, Asia has become a much more important theatre of the rivalry that's now developing between China and the United States. But even then, when Indonesia looks at its region, I don't think its defence planners see any particularly direct conventional threats towards Indonesian security. You mentioned the South China Sea before, and certainly that impinges on Indonesia's exclusive economic zone, but it's not a claimant to maritime features in the Spratly and Paracel Islands the way that other Southeast Asian nations are. And consequently, it hasn't had its access to resources that it would consider its right restricted by Chinese or other nations' military installations, for example. And I guess, in my view, what this has produced is fairly superficial security partnerships with other larger nations. If I refer to the United States as Indonesia's most important security partner, I'm not implying that it has an alliance with the United States. I'm simply highlighting it has the very long-standing, higher volume of security cooperation with the United States compared to other nations. It exists in a region where over time the United States has been the main security guarantor. And prior to its democratization, in particular, certainly the United States would have been its largest supplier of defense equipment. But certainly it's in a position where it's relied more on multilateralism and superficial partnerships and its own geographic location rather than straight alliances to maintain its security. And if if we look at those multilateral relationships and being friends with everyone, if you like, how does Indonesia work in with those multilateral regional institutions, the likes of ASEAN, for example? How important are they to Indonesia? Our uh, principle of free and active foreign policy is very much helpful in this case because this principle we can be in any 
multilateral arrangement with any countries, especially, of course, with ASEAN countries, but with other big powers like United States, like uh, Japan, and also India in Russia and China, of course, we have uh, also mechanism of ASEAN plus one and ASEAN plus three or ASEAN regional forum. So in this kind of mechanism, then we manage to deal with them. And lately, ASEAN also developed ASEAN Ministerial Defense Forum, so ADMM, which is very important because in this ADMM, all the Ministry of Defense from ASEAN and partner countries like United States or China are invited. And indeed, under ADMM, uh, we do joint exercise and also other activities to reduce the security dilemma for the confident building. Let's look at the bilateral relationship, particularly with China. And Dave, can you take us back to the the mid-60s, the anti-communist purge that became conflated with the killings of ethnic Chinese and the impact that those historical events have had on the perception of China today and indeed the perception of ethnic Chinese Indonesians today? If you're charting some of the development of attitudes to ethnic Chinese Indonesians, you need to go back even further beyond 1965 to the the sort of different positions that the Dutch colonial regime afforded to different ethnicities within the colony and a sort of privileged economic position given to those of Chinese descent uh, compared to those of other ethnicities. And this was something that sort of continued on through the authoritarian period into, into Sahado's government. As you mentioned, the Sahado regime born out of these mass killings of people accused as communist sympathisers. This caused a rupture uh, in relations with China as well because of perceptions within Indonesia that China had meddled in Indonesian affairs through allegations of support to Indonesian communists. That produced a situation where Chinese Indonesians were largely restricted from a political role under the Sahado regime, restricted also from expressing basic elements of their identity, such as the use of Chinese language. But they were placed in a position as a privileged economic class. This doesn't apply to all Chinese Indonesians, particularly in some of the outer islands like West Kalimantan. You find Chinese Indonesians living in sort of modest rural circumstances. But many of the large businesses in Indonesia over the authoritarian period were controlled by Chinese Indonesian business people relying on access to the state. And so I guess this has produced a situation of entrenched prejudices towards the Chinese. The authoritarian government would often use them as a buffer against broader society when there was dissatisfaction with the government and you had a long sequence of anti-Chinese riots under authoritarianism. That complicates relations with China, even though diplomatic relations have been restored, because when you do have situations like the anti-Chinese riots in 1998 accompanying the fall of Suharto, other violence or discrimination against ethnic Chinese, any statement of support from China will always provoke a negative reaction from Indonesia. Effie, do you agree that there are continuing underlying tensions, if you like? current situation is actually much better for Chinese, especially after President Abdurrahman Wahid Gusdur introduced more tolerant policy. But the current political circumstances is quite delicate too, because uh, some of the parties, some of the politicians use the sentiment against China for their own gains. And it's kind of revived the anti-China sentiment in Indonesian politics. And to what extent does it depend on which 
group of Indonesian or which section of Indonesian society that you're talking to, if you look at the relationship with China, do different layers of society have different views on that relationship? I would say that because they have different relations with China and some of them enjoy some benefit. For those who enjoy benefit in a relation with China, would always have positive opinion and perception towards China, including those like business people in Indonesia, especially those who are Chinese descendants. They have very good relation with China in terms of business and indeed they are the link of economic relation with Indonesia and China. And they are the one who also persuaded President Suharto to normalize the relation in 1990. So for them, relation with China is very positive. They always have positive perception towards China and always try to maintain a good relation because they are the one who get the best benefit. But for the rest of the people who didn't really know the relation, didn't have a direct contact with China or any of China's business or China's people, so the relation is very much depend on what the generation in the country. So if some politician use a kind of anti-China sentiment for their political purposes, it can easily be sparked around the country. And also because current economic development with China, a very active relation with China, have brought a lot of China's product, influx of China product, influx of China labor to Indonesia. So it has been framed by several people to defame the government or the current president. So that's why uh, those people who don't really have direct relation with China or only know China from a distance can easily be persuaded to be also become anti-China. And of course, there are uh, some very real tensions that definitely made the headlines in, in recent years. And I'm talking about competing claims in the South China Sea. Indonesia doesn't claim rocks and islands alongside China, but it does claim an exclusive economic zone where China says its nine dash line also runs and includes the traditional fishing grounds that Indonesia claims. How far... Is Indonesia prepared to go to protect that position? We had three maritime skirmishes in 2016. We had Indonesia seizing a Chinese fishing boat. If that was to blow up again, Effie, how far would Indonesia go? I think at the time being, uh, government will uh, go as far as uh, to catch the illegal fishing vessel to that area. And even if we have to deal with China, we'll deal with China in that. Of course, in a high level, President Jokowi and President Xi Jinping have very good relation. So we know that relation will not get worse. But we also need to tell China that uh, enough is enough. The problem is we've never get confirmation from China's side regarding the fixed location of that nine-dash line. They never tell us where it is. So it's quite dangerous if we just let that kind of intrusion in our water continue. So I think current government, especially facing the presidential election next year, will do everything to stop that kind of intrusion. And that's why President Jokowi, uh, since last year, already ordered that the Navy, Indonesian Navy, to also establish or improve the Navy base in West Kalimantan to be, I think, one level higher. So that means not as higher as the one in Jakarta, but at least now to uh, strengthen the Navy base in West Kalimantan close to that area. 
Dave, what's your thoughts on how far Indonesia may go or not go? Well, I think in responding to China's challenge around in the waters around the Natuna Islands, the Indonesian government is balancing two concerns. One is protection of its sovereignty, and probably along with the issue of Palestinian independence, sovereignty is the one issue that brings foreign policy really into the public consciousness. Any suggestion that an Indonesian government is not sufficiently protecting Indonesian sovereignty is very sensitive domestically. Um, But on the other hand, uh, you have a situation where, as I said, China is Indonesia's most important economic partner. So what we've seen to date has been moves by Indonesia to signal its resolve on this challenge from China under Jokowi, that's meant travelling personally to the area and convening a cabinet meeting aboard a warship, being present when large-scale military exercises were conducted in the area, but at the same time having rhetoric from senior members of the government saying sovereignty is non-negotiable, but we're still going to remain good friends with all countries, including China. So I think you see these efforts to signal resolve to China because Indonesia's navy cannot consistently uh, patrol the entirety of Indonesia's waters, but at the same time try to compartmentalise that issue in Indonesia's broader relations with China. You're listening to Ear to Asia from Asia Institute at the University of Melbourne. I'm Ali Moore and I'm joined by political scientists Dr Dave McRae from Asia Institute and Dr Effie Fitriani, who joins us via Skype from Universitas Indonesia in Jakarta. We're discussing Indonesia's foreign policy priorities and predicaments. Dave, you mentioned just before uh, how strong a supporter Indonesia is of Palestinian independence. And Indonesia is, of course, the world's largest Muslim-majority country. Tell us a little about political Islam and how it's affected foreign policy, because Indonesia is not a theocracy, but it's not a secular society either, is it? No, no. So I guess when we talk about political Islam, we're talking about efforts to have state and society regulated according to Islamic doctrine or principles. And really the limit of of that push in Indonesia has been the rejection on two occasions of a push by certain Islamic groups to have the constitution require Muslims to follow Islamic law. That's not in the constitution. Instead, the state ideology of Panchasila mentions belief in one God as one of the principles of the state. But you do have ongoing pressures within Indonesia from, I guess, supporters of political Islam for a greater role for Islam in public life. The most visible demonstration of that in recent times was the campaign against the then incumbent governor of Jakarta, Basuki Cahaya Panama or Ahok, in 2016, where you had Islamists saying only a Muslim could be governor of Jakarta. And of course, in the wake of a large Islamist protest movement and his prosecution for blasphemy, Ahok did ultimately lose that election to a Muslim candidate, Anis Baswedan. If we go back to foreign policy, you have a similar situation. Indonesia's foreign policy is not determined by reference to Islamic doctrine or Islamic principles. Muslim-majority countries, by and large, are not its most important international partners. But you do see a special concern for certain issues to do with Muslims or Islam that you might not in a country like Australia. One is concern for conflict-affected Muslim populations abroad, like the issue of Palestinian independence, the plight of the Rohingya in Indonesia's region, and going back a few years, the conflict-affected populations in countries like Syria and even Egypt during its democratic transition. The other is you see 
I guess, Indonesia, particularly under Yudhiyono, promote or propose an international protocol on blasphemy, again, reflecting domestic concerns from some of these conservative Islamic groups around challenges or criticism of Islam. So I think you have a situation where pressure from domestic Islamic groups can be a limiting factor on Indonesia's foreign policy, but it doesn't determine all of the positions that Indonesia takes. Effie, how do you see the future of the role of Islam in public life in Indonesia and the amount of influence it has on foreign policy? I just would like to highlight that because Islamic population in the world, Indonesia is actually have a lot of voices from Muslim community to shape also foreign policy, especially because in Islam, there is a concept of brotherhood. So the solidarity of Islam and Muslim around the world has been revived quite uh, importantly in Indonesia in the last maybe 10 or 20 years. So in this context, if there is international issues that dealing with kind of uh, Islam society like Palestine or anti-Islam policy by President Trump or any other countries, including Rohingya, it will uh, certainly attract attention of this Muslim society and they try to use this journey of solidarity as Muslim. In this sense, government policy toward those issues will certainly consider the pressure from those society. I just wanted to highlight also those kind of uh, pressure is much bigger in this democratic era now rather than previously under Suharto. During Suharto period, this kind of pressure from Muslim community is not really play a, a big role or significantly in Suharto's foreign policy. But nowadays, under this democratic uh, system, it's very much influenced the foreign policy. And government can easily get criticized from this kind of groups if they mismanage this issue. Dave, if that's the case, what does that potentially mean for what has been continuity in foreign policy? I guess it depends on the area of policy you're looking at. You know, I agree completely with Evie that a real difference between the democratic era and the authoritarian era for Indonesia is that under the authoritarian era, protests openly against the government and its foreign policy position would have been almost unthinkable. So Sahato and his foreign minister had great discretion to set foreign policy direction. The reality of foreign policy, though, is that a lot of it takes place largely out of the public attention, largely beyond the concern of Indonesia's political parties. And we see that in the fact that the foreign minister, with only one exception during the democratic era, has been a career diplomat rather than a political party politician, whereas across many other ministries, every appointee would have been a politician sort of throughout the past 20 years. But certainly, once issues reach public salience, then domestic political considerations have to be a concern just the way they would be in any country. And that's where Australia, I guess, has really complicated its intentions to sign a free trade agreement with Indonesia by this proposal to potentially move Australia's embassy because it's impinged upon one of the few foreign policy issues that consistently can come to public attention in Indonesia, that issue of Palestinian independence, and all the more so done so in a way that was personally embarrassing to Indonesia's foreign minister because this was announced at the time that Indonesia was hosting the Palestinian foreign minister. So we touched on the US relationship broadly, Dave. 
how important is that relationship? We've said that it's not a, a security relationship as such, but how important is it for both parties, both the Americans and the Indonesians? And what do the Indonesians make of Trump? Um, I don't think there's any great affection uh, for Donald Trump in Indonesia, but by the same token, there's probably been less protests towards Trump than what you might expect in the world's largest Muslim-majority nation. The bans on immigration from various Muslim countries have largely passed unremarked upon, uh, probably because they don't directly affect Indonesia. And it really only was, as, as you mentioned earlier, the, the move of the embassy in Israel that provoked large public protests about the US role. I do think the US remains an important partner for Indonesia, um, both in security terms and economically. It's still a major source of foreign investment. And we've seen when Joko Widodo, the president, has visited the United States, he's typically been keen to meet with the private sector in the United States as a way of demonstrating growing economic ties. I think also when you talk about Indonesia's approach to regional security, and Evie mentioned before the, the larger multilateral grouping centred on ASEAN, like the East Asia Summit, Indonesia was keen for the US to join the East Asia Summit to offset the influence that China might otherwise enjoy in a multilateral forum like that as the largest other nation. For the US, I think it has an interest beyond the alliances that it has in Southeast Asia and the broader Indo-Pacific to maintain constructive ties with countries like Indonesia, who are influential players in some of the multilateral groupings. Well, certainly for the US, I, I don't think the relationship with Indonesia is top billing, but it's still a partnership that I think carries some benefits for both sides. Effie, what's your thoughts? The United States is important for Indonesia, but we will never rely on the United States. In the previous time, uh, Indonesia have had several bad times with the United States, and we always found that the United States is not always reliable partners. So for Indonesia, it's important to maintain a good relation with the United States, but we should not rely on the United States. In terms of security, we learn experience, bad experience. If we buy arms from the United States, then if the relation gets sour, there will be problem. So that's why Indonesia tried to differentiate its source of military suppliers. And in terms of any other activities, a lot of policy of the United States is not in line with Indonesian foreign policy. So the perception toward United States under President Trump is quite negative in Indonesia. As we start to wind up this conversation, we've talked uh, at the outset about the continuity in foreign policy in Indonesia. I wonder what would throw that continuity off course? What could be a game changer for future Indonesian foreign policy? Dave? I think if you were talking about change in terms of moving out of that free and active sort of sphere altogether, you'd need a really abrupt change in Indonesia's strategic circumstances. You know, much more instability in the region, sort of a, a very different challenge to Indonesia's own national security as one possible factor. The other thing I'd highlight would simply be a president who might drag foreign policy much more strongly into the domestic sphere, a sort of overt nationalism, a platform based on the idea that Indonesia's wealth is leaking overseas, is really the sorts of things that a challenger like Prabowo Subianto has highlighted as a way of attacking the current president, Joko Widodo. If you did have a president come to power on that sort of ultranationalist platform, it may well be that you saw quite a different looking foreign policy as a result of the politicisation of many more of Indonesia's foreign policy positions within the country.
Dev, if Prabowo became Indonesian president, do you think he would carry out this kind of nationalist foreign policy? I think continuity is still most likely. You know, I guess it's a function of the question that when you are asked to highlight potential factors for change, you know, change the strategic circumstances or a different president, uh, two of them. I think Prabowo is a mixed bag. You know, on the one hand, you see this ultra-nationalist rhetoric. I think the campaign he run in 2014 has pushed Indonesia overall in a more nationalist direction since. But on the other hand, he certainly also has a strong pragmatic streak. Uh, and you see that both in his approach to the embassy issue, where he said last week that, of course, he supports Palestinian independence, but he feels nations have the right to decide where their embassy should be. And he did a similar thing around the time of Australia's spying with Indonesia in 2013, where his public commentary was more of the strain that Indonesia should engage in introspection as to why other countries were able to spy on it, rather than get angry at the fact that this espionage had occurred. So I think he'd be balancing that nationalist streak that is really the reason he's popular in the first place with obviously the same disposition that any president would have, that in their dealings with the outside world, they're looking for what is the best deal they can get for their own administration and for the country as a whole. Effie, do you agree about Prabowo? Well, I see that Indonesian foreign policy has gone quite dynamic, though, but the principle of free and active is always be the core of that. So uh, in any president, usually we see a different style, but at the end of the day, we always see that all the Indonesian presidents also pursue development and try to never become under any of big powers. Well, it's going to be fascinating to watch Indonesia, not just its foreign policy by any stretch of the imagination, but indeed the elections for next year, the presidential elections. An enormous thank you to both Effie Indicata and Dave for talking to us on Ear to Asia. Pleasure. Thank you very much. Our guests have been political scientist Dr Dave McRae of Asia Institute at the University of Melbourne. He's also the co-host of the Talking Indonesia podcast. And Dr Effie Fitriani from Universitas Indonesia. Ear to Asia is brought to you by Asia Institute of the University of Melbourne, Australia. You can find more information about this and all our other episodes at the Asia Institute website. Be sure to keep up with every episode of Ear to Asia by following us on the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, Stitcher or SoundCloud. If you like the show, please rate and review it on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, let your friends know about us on social media. This episode was recorded on the 28th of November, 2018. Producers were Calvin Parham and Eric Van Bemmel of Profactual.com. Audio engineering by Chris Hatzis. Ear to Asia is licensed under Creative Commons, copyright 2018, the University of Melbourne. I'm Ali Moore. Thanks for your company.